This week on the Myths and Legends podcast, we're continuing the story of Jason and the Argonauts as they brave monsters, kidnappers, and too much feasting and drinking. You'll see that mythical creatures make terrible dinner guests and that you do not want to take a road trip with Hercules. The creature this week is why you don't want to curse your enemy to become a giant roaring bull because they're your enemy and giant roaring bulls are scary. This is the Myths and Legends Podcast, Episode 46B, MacGuffin. This is a podcast where I tell stories from folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories you might not have heard, but really should. We're continuing the story of Jason and the Argonauts. So if you haven't heard 46A, go back and listen to that before listening to this. Previously on the show, we met Jason, who was chased from his kingdom as a baby. His father was usurped by a man named Peleus, who set Jason on a journey to go find the Golden Fleece. Jason wasted no time in getting together a who's who of the ancient Greek heroes, including Theseus and Hercules, and they all set out on the Argo, their ship, for Colchis, to get the dragon-guarded Golden Fleece from King Aetes. ship had been seen on the horizon. The women of the island of Lemnos were in a panic. The men of Lemnos were not, mainly because the men of Lemnos had all been killed by the women of Lemnos. Now the entire island that had been drilling in warrior tactics since they shut the gates and murdered the men and their mistresses in their beds were worried. The ship was obviously Thracian. It had come from the mainland to kill all of them for their horrible deeds. The queen of the island, named Hypsophile, called the women in town together to talk about what they should do. They were all worried. The men, before they died, had left the island to raid Thrace, and they had taken women captive. Returning to Lemnos, they decided to treat their captives like wives. One very gruesome night a few months after that, and the men and the captives were dead. The women were starting to rethink their situation, though. They had killed all the men, so unless something happened, this would be the last generation of their people. That end would come faster, too, if the Thracians came for their captives and found them all dead, Hypsophile gritted her teeth and gripped her spear. Their freedom had been purchased with blood, and if more blood was necessary to stay free, so be it. That's when one of their warriors entered the meeting. The people on the ship, they were men. They came in peace, and they were really good-looking. Hypsophile cocked her head. Good-looking, huh? Okay, new plan. All the Argonauts were warmly received by the women of Lemnos, and the women found them all too willing to solve the problem of where the next generation would come from. Hypsophile coupled up with Jason and told him nearly the whole truth. But when they got to the very important detail of murdering all the men in town, she just said the men and their mistresses went to live on a farm upstate. Don't worry about it. For some reason, Hercules did not go ashore, preferring to wait in the Argo with Hylas, his young ward, and a few others. He thought that it would only take a day or so for them to get some provisions and come back to the ship. But when a week passed, he was getting uncharacteristically angry at the heroes stopping off to father some children with strangers, something that Hercules did all of the time. He had come to get some golden fleece and fight a dragon, not settle down at their first stop. I can imagine him going like a parent and dragging each Argonaut out to the boat by their ear, 
It's said that the Argonauts were so ashamed of their desire to stay that they wouldn't look him in the eye until they were well on their way. They sailed onward until coming to the island of Dialonis. There, they met King Sisychus, who entertained them with a feast. They enjoyed the feast and there weren't any tragic misunderstandings or anything. Even when they ran into real danger on the next island, with giant defenders of the island rising from the ground to attack their boat, all it took was several successive hydro-poison-coated headshots from Hercules and no more giants. There was that feast, the new friends they made on the last island, and now they all got to watch Hercules do what Hercules does best by taking out six giants with six arrows. Dear Diary, best quest ever. At this rate, the dragon at the end might just be one big build-your-own ice cream sundae bar. It was going so well that they were kind of actually itching for a fight. And that fight finally came. That night, the winds kicked up and they were blown off course. The Argo tossed in the storm before running aground. The storm stopped and they saw the torches of an army glowing in the moonless night, streaming down the hills to meet the invaders. They put their helmets slash invulnerable lion cloaks on and went to work. It was their first fight, so the Argonauts gave 110%. If they had been just a little bit less enthusiastic, though, they might have seen that this wasn't really an army, but just a small militia that had been put together consisting of farmers, merchants, and others to defend their homes. It was pretty easy. It was like the Avengers fighting a kindergarten class. If the Argonauts had paused for maybe a second or two, they would have also noticed that they had been blown back to the island of King Sisychus, the place where they had an awesome feast not two days prior. Jason heard a familiar voice when he shoved his spear through the king. Several apologies and funerals later, after the tragic misunderstanding, the Argonauts were back on the sea, determined to finally get to Colchis and the Golden Fleece. They rowed as quickly as they could, for days, with Hercules really being the MVP rower, and that he rowed so hard that his oar snapped. Since idle hands of the Hercules is killing things, they decided to stop off to make a new oar. They landed on the island of Chus, and everyone rested after a couple days of actual work. Hercules wandered into the forest, looking for a good tree to make a new oar. Deep into the forest, he found a fir tree, and wouldn't you know it, found that he forgot the axe. He didn't want to have to walk all the way back to the Argo, and then all the way back to the tree and try to find it again. So he shrugged, hugged the tree, and tore the full-grown fir tree from the ground, roots and all. As he staggered under the 100-foot-tall tree, he decided that he would chop it up when he got back to the Argo. Meanwhile, back at the boat, Hylas, Hercules' young friend slash more than friend according to some sources, took a bronze pitcher and left to get water in the forest. He walked for a short while, the sun setting behind him, until he chanced upon a river. Kneeling down, he filled the pitcher with cool water. As he looked down at the river, he saw the river staring back at him. At first he thought it was his reflection, but then he noticed that it did not move when he did. It wasn't his reflection, it was a creature staring back at him. He screamed and reached for his spear. Then the monster rose from the water. And it was not a monster at all, but a beautiful young woman. She rose from the water, naked, and for a moment they stood there, stunned by each other's beauty. Then they kissed. Not too far away, Polyphemus, another Argonaut and Hercules' brother-in-law, heard the initial scream from the river. He knew that Hylas had gone that way, and he immediately thought the worst. He picked up his spear and rushed toward the noise. Hylas, Hercules' young friend, was in love. And after they stopped kissing, the nymph wordlessly took his hand and pulled him closer to the river. He didn't care about trivialities like 
not being able to breathe underwater. He just wanted to be with her. He stood up, tossed the pitcher aside, and entered the river. Polyphemus just missed Hylas being pulled under the water as he ran to the river and found the bronze pitcher. Polyphemus bellowed out in rage and went to look for the brigands that had taken Hylas. It wasn't long before he found Hercules, walking to the ship with the 100-foot-tall pine tree tucked under his arm in order to make one oar. He swung the tree maybe even farther than Ilya Maromitz when he learned that Hylas had been captured by bandits. Hercules transformed from the slightly bored traveler to the walking Greek murder machine that we all know and love, and took off after his friend. Polyphemus followed as the sun dipped below the horizon, and darkness fell. The wind was good, and the Argo was able to ride it east, with Jason sitting at the helm. They had left the island of Chus just after sunset, and had been sailing through the night. It was peaceful, until someone asked where Hercules was. How they missed the absence of a wall of muscle like Hercules is anyone's guess. But they dropped anchor and debated what to do. Obviously, the right answer was go back after Hercules, but a debate raged until they heard something at the bow of the ship. The heroes craned their necks over the ship to see something fishy. That was a dad joke, I couldn't help myself, but really, he was an aged and withered fishman named Glaucus. He was born immortal and worked as a fisherman until he discovered a mysterious plant that brought fish back to life. With very little prompting or forethought, he took a big bite of the plant himself and collapsed in his boat. He had to rock his boat until it capsized and he spilled out into the water. That's when he found that he had been transformed. He was, of course, now a prophetic merman, but with two pretty substantial exceptions. The first, he didn't have arms, but little flippers. Second, he would never be tempted to knife a prince to avoid turning into sea foam. Glaucus had immortality with one small yet glaring caveat. He did not have eternal youth. Thus, the old, befinned man, now at the front of the Argo. He told the heroes not to worry about Hercules and Polyphemus. They were fine marooned in a hostile land. Polyphemus was destined to found a city there, and Hercules, well, Hercules still had about eight more labors, so he needed to get back on track anyway. The heroes accepted this. Prophecy was prophecy, and it also meant that they did not need to turn around. Yeah, Glaucus continued, but don't worry. Some of you will see Hercules again when you get back to Greece, when he attacks you for abandoning him. King Amicus ruled an island. King Amicus enjoyed boxing to the death with anyone who showed up on that island. The Argonaut showed up on the island. After that, King Amicus no longer ruled the island. After sufficient high-fiving and raiding of the former king's herds and city, the Argonauts were back on their way. King Phineas of Eastern Thrace sat huddled in his shack by the shore. His hands were shaking. He had found a fish just moments ago, dead on the beach, and hidden it in his ragged shirt. Maybe they wouldn't know. Maybe he would be able to eat. He didn't wait to cook it. He didn't even take off the scales and skin. He took one raw, glorious bite before he heard the wings. He tried to swallow and take another before the claws of one of the flying beasts hooked into the food and the other slashed at his back. He fell to the rocks, sobbing, as the harpies, once again, ate his dinner. When they finished, they tossed the fish bones to the ground. Phineas scrambled to the remains and sucked the meager, stinking scales and meat from the bones. They had left him next to nothing. 
They always left him just enough of his meals for him to get a taste of what they took, but never enough to satisfy the gnawing ache in his gut. They did, however, leave piles and piles of the previous night's meals. All around his little shack on the beach, the piles reeked. Phineas waited for a long moment. It was disgusting and degrading, but it meant staying alive. Tonight, though, he would resist. Tomorrow, the Argonauts were coming. In a mythological tradition famous for its creative and sadistic forms of punishment, that of King Phineas ranks toward the top. He was a king whom Apollo had gifted with prophecy. It sounds pretty great, I know, except that he was knowledgeable of the will of the gods. Most of them were negligent to fairly horrible, but one stood out in particular. The king of the gods, Zeus. Phineas, in an instant, knew all of Zeus's past and future terribleness. He knew the names of every woman Zeus would be with, consensually or not. He knew everyone who would live a torturous life because of it. King Phineas did not think twice. He went to the women to warn them, and we can assume it worked, and that Zeus found the women cold and wary to his advances. Worse yet, Hera was beginning to learn of his past flings. Zeus learned of King Phineas, and even though he could have just struck the man dead, he needed to set an example. Phineas was not the only person in the world who could see the future. Zeus needed to make sure that no one else spoke out against him. He summoned the creatures that have been called Zeus's hounds, the harpies, to bring about the worst sort of torture for the man. Harpies are mythological creatures with the heads of women and bodies of birds. However, some depictions have them with the head of women, bodies of women, and wings and talons of birds. They're not fun to be around. It was a nice spring day when King Phineas was sitting down to a feast that his people had prepared him. His eyes burned and his hands went to them. That was the last time he would ever use them. He tried opening them again, but it was just darkness. King Phineas had been struck blind. Then he heard a screeching and the wings, harpies. They attacked King Phineas and the guests. Soon they carried off all but a few scraps. The people helped their king, mysteriously blinded, but every time someone brought food, he would hear wings crashing and then silence. Soon, no one wanted to eat with him for fear of monsters. He moved to a desolate little shack on the shore so that no one would be hurt by the beasts. Even when he was driven to do the absolutely disgusting to stay alive, he gritted his teeth and never relented. He knew his salvation would come someday in the form of a talking ship brimming with muscles. Until that day, he would endure and continue to do the right thing and prophesy against Zeus to whomever would hear it. The Argonauts saw the old man collapse on the rocks. He had emerged from the shack and into the sun with the biggest smile on his face after they had landed. But then he fainted. They ran to King Phineas and brought him water. It roused him, and they tried to ask him who he was and what was going on, but he didn't answer. He kept waving off the food that they were bringing him from the Argo. He didn't want it. They were coming. He could hear the wings. It was too late. Theseus barely saw the monsters. They were impossibly fast, and in a moment, Theseus was on the ground, and empty-handed. The monsters could fly, and so most of the Argonauts could only watch them take the food and disappear into the sky. Most of the Argonauts could only watch. As it turned out, two young men on the ship were the result of the north wind, Boreas, abducting and, yeah, Orithia, the daughter of a king of Athens. As a result, they could fly. They shot off the ship, swords in hand, after the harpies. A fantastic aerial battle between two heroes and two harpies, the hounds of Zeus, never happened. 
these stories know just how to cut out at the wrong moment. The brothers raced after the harpies, and when Zeus saw that they would catch the harpies, he sent down Iris, a messenger of the Olympians. She is the personification of the rainbow, and she essentially said, hey, you can't kill them. They belong to Zeus. As a consolation, Zeus will stop harassing King Phineas, and he can finally eat non-defiled meals. It was nighttime when they returned to the coast, and they could see the fires and hear the laughter. For the first time in years, Phineas was happy. He thanked the brothers and started talking to Jason and Theseus about the next steps for their journey, about the dangers they would face. They stayed until the next morning when they guided the blind prophet back to his city, into his palace, returning him once again to his people. The Bosphorus is a strait, and it forms part of the continental boundary between Europe and Asia. It's in northwest Turkey, and it has a bit of ancient Greece folk etymology. It's supposedly the combination of bos, meaning ox or cattle, and forest, meaning passage, referring to the place where our old friend Io, when she was a heifer, crossed the strait and met Prometheus, and received the good-slash-horrible news that she would meet up with Zeus again, and he would transform her into a human, and she would have his children. Anyway, the strait used to have rocks that would crash into one another, crushing any ship that would come through it. Maybe. Sitting before the rocks of the Argo, Jason let a dove go into the Bosphorus, as Phineas had told him. If the dove survived, then the Argo would if it tried to pass. If not, everyone was going home early. The dove made it through, just losing a few tail feathers in the process. The Argo made it, just losing a little bit of wood in the back of the ship. The ship approached a shore, and the wind died. The Argonauts, the greatest warriors of their time, got chills at their collective spines. In the forest, they saw scores of archers aiming. On the beach were Amazonians. We really need to do a full episode about the Amazonians, but they are warrior women, kind of seen as grotesque to the ancient Greeks. Check out episode 10b for a little more information on them. The Argonauts could see them gathered on the beach, and they began to get their own armor on. They were within a bowshot of the Amazonians, and they would need to somehow get to shore before the arrows rained down on them from the sky. They were excited, though. They would finally have a battle befitting their epic group, except that the wind picked up at that moment, and they ended up not having to stop the island after all. So yeah, no big fight with the Amazonians. I guess it wasn't in the budget. Next, they did end up making more stops on the way to Colchis. There was more feasting, and there was also tragedy, because they lost one Argonaut to a giant white boar, and another to illness. They sailed past an island where three men in ragged clothes were waving and yelling. The Argo maneuvered around the rocks and picked them up, and they learned that the three men were actually from Colchis, the kingdom of King Aetes. Remember when I talked about the Golden Fleece last episode, when Phrixus married the daughter of King Aetes? Well, her name was Calciope, and she had children. Well, these were the children. They had been traveling back to their father's homeland of Greece when their ship wrecked. They had been on this island for months, and thanked the Argonauts. They knew their mother, a princess of Colchis, must be worried about them. They could see Mount Caucasus in the distance, and they heard the screams even before that. The Titan wasn't visible, but the Eagle was. The wings beat the air as the creature hovered over the form and jerked a bloody liver from the writhing figure. It flew away, chewing on the liver. They all knew who it was. Prometheus. 
the titan that had defied Zeus by giving fire to humanity eons ago, had to have his liver eaten brutally by a giant eagle, only to have it regrow each night and be eaten again the next morning. The Argo was quiet that day. The next day, they saw the mouth of the river that would lead them into Colchis, in land of Aetes. Although writers play up how dangerous this quest has been, really, they only lost two people, and only one violently. Hercules and Polyphemus would find their way home, and Hylas was maybe not dead, with his new nymph girlfriend at the bottom of a river. I'm pretty sure Hercules has killed more of his friends by accident than Greek people who have died on the quest for the Golden Fleece so far. They were rowing and in good spirits when one hero felt a pang, and then noticed a foot-long piece of jagged metal lodged in his shoulder. The other Argonauts heard him cry when he pulled the metal out, but they saw that it wasn't just some piece, it was in the shape of a feather. That's when they looked up. Approaching them and filling the sky was nearly a thousand birds. They had beaks and feathers of bronze, and they knew how to use them. The Argonauts got their shields up just in time, because the birds could launch their bronze feathers into people like knives. If these sound familiar, well, they are. These are the Stymphalian birds. Large, dangerous birds with bronze beaks and feathers. It was one of Hercules' labors to drive them off. Everyone of the Argo knew of it, despite it really not working with the timeline. The Stymphalian birds were the sixth labor. Anyway, they all knew of it. So amidst the sound of hundreds of jagged bronze feathers hitting their shields, they talked about how Hercules had driven off the birds with loud noises. Theseus chimed in, why don't they just do that? And they did that. And the Stymphalian birds were scared away. Once again, someone else's problem. The Argonauts sailed safely upriver to Colchis, their journey almost complete. We'll see that getting a fleece of pure gold from a notoriously ill-tempered and muscly king is slightly more difficult than just asking politely. Right after this. This week's episode is brought to you by Movement Watches. I don't know if you've looked at watches recently, but it's really hard to find a good-looking, well-made watch that's not super expensive. Movement, spelled MVMT, was started by two college kids who couldn't afford four to five hundred dollar watches, so they went on a crowdfunding site and started their own business. Three years later, they've sold over half a million watches. Their whole thing is affordability, style, and quality. The watches start at $95, and their most expensive is in the ballpark of around $140. The watches look awesome, though, and they're really well-made. I got a movement watch, and it's super nice. Genuine leather band, stainless steel body, and it just looks great. It looks cool, it goes with everything, and it feels like it'll last forever. If you're looking for a new watch, seriously, check out Movement. You can get 15% off today with free shipping and free returns by going to mvmtwatches.com myths. This watch is a really clean design, and seriously, I've been getting compliments ever since I put it on. Now's the time to step up your watch game, so go to mvmtwatches.com myths. Join the movement. This week's episode is brought to you by Blue Apron. So I just went through like three hours of deciding what to do for dinner, looking up a recipe, me and the little guy going out to get stuff, and cooking, while my wife finished up teaching a late lecture. We didn't do a Blue Apron meal tonight, and it took forever. There are a lot of reasons to go with Blue Apron. They use fresh, high-quality ingredients. You know where the food came from, their seafood is sustainably sourced, beef is humanely raised, and they use regenerative farming practices for produce. And they cost less than $10 a meal. There are a lot of benefits to getting Blue Apron. All those reasons aside, I can be super lazy, especially when it comes to cooking. 
Blue Apron is awesome because you get great gourmet recipes that you can pick. You get the ingredients shipped to you pre-portioned, and it only takes like 35 to 40 minutes, start to finish. And I've done it with a two-year-old running around. You can check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com legends. You will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. That's blueapron.com legends. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Medea, a princess of Colchis, heard a crash down the hall. She blinked awake. What time was it? There was daylight? She had overslept. She usually woke up early to go to the Temple of Hecate, a goddess associated with magic and witchcraft. Medea sat up in bed. The sounds were down the hall, in her father's house. She heard screaming and weeping. She was still in her sleeping clothes and she peeked out into the hallway. The deeper voices reverberated through the walls. She didn't recognize them or their strange accents. She slowly opened the door and peered around it. As she did, she felt a pain in her back, in her heart. Cupid or Eros had been camped out in the window all night. He knew Jason would come here, and he knew Medea would open the door to investigate the sound. And if that didn't happen, well, he was a flying invisible toddler with a bow and arrow. Not a lot could get in his way. He watched the arrow sink into Medea's back and into her heart. He had heard stories of Apollo's archery skills when Apollo was a baby, and Cupid knew he wasn't some hotshot newborn. He was nearly three years old, but with age came experience. Cupid didn't miss. Hera, the wife of Zeus, knew that she needed to help Jason out. They had made it mostly intact to Colchis, but now they faced another set of problems. King Aetes. He was an angry, proud, and powerful man who had big muscles. A couple texts make the point of saying that. Hera knew that she also needed someone on the inside of Aetes' household, and she knew just the woman, Medea, the youngest daughter of King Aetes, who was a skilled witch and sorceress. But Hera couldn't just command her to side with Jason against her own family. She needed something stronger. She needed Medea to love Jason. Hera arrived at Aphrodite's mansion, Aphrodite being the goddess of love and beauty, and Hera asked Aphrodite to do something for her. She needed to enlist the power of Cupid, or Eros in the Greek. Cupid wasn't yet the attractive young man who he met in the Cupid and Psyche story, but here he was just a toddler, an unruly one. After some vaguely witty banter, Aphrodite finally fessed up. She had absolutely no control over Cupid. I mean, case in point, at the time they were talking, Cupid was up on Olympus, gambling and scamming Zeus's cupbearer out of a lot of money. Hera rolled her eyes. All right. Let's go talk to this little guy. They found Cupid counting out his winnings, and he said hello to his mommy and asked what she wanted. There was a little bit of a tantrum when Aphrodite told the toddler that he needed to do his job and go shoot a stranger with his adorable little bow and arrow. Luckily, though, toddler Cupid had the refined taste and sensibilities of a two-year-old. Aphrodite bribed him with a shiny ball, and he agreed to go shoot the girl. Hera and Aphrodite watched the toddler fly off toward Colchis with Aphrodite remarking that she just can't wait for this phase to be over. Hera said that, yeah, it's tough, but they grow up so fast. Just watch. You blink and he's all grown up, abducting a wife of his very own. 
A few hours after Cube had left Olympus, Hera was hovering over the Argo. Jason and his Argonauts had decided on a course of action to get the fleece, which consisted of asking King Aetes politely for it, and then politely taking it by force with their 50 legendary warriors, if he refused. They put on their armor, picked up their weapons, and readied themselves for a really pleasant walk into the city. It was like the guards at the wall, and the normal people in the city did not even see them. That's because they didn't. Hera shrouded them in mist, and opened the iron gates of King Aetes' fortress so that, before anyone knew it, the 50 legendary warriors were inside. The Argonauts got yet another freebie. Calciope's sons, the ragged men that they picked up on the way, didn't waste time. It had been months since they had seen their mother, and they took the massive warriors straight to the floor with all the sleeping women. And it was a super sweet reunion between mother and sons, and it warmed the Argonauts' hearts. This was a special day. That's where Cupid had been camped out in the window at the end of the hall, and where Medea had opened her door and looked on one Argonaut in particular. Cupid watched his arrow sink into her and saw her looking at Jason. His job done, he flew off to Olympus to collect his reward and play with the ball for about 10 minutes before tossing it aside for the box that it came in. Medea felt a strange pain, but then she gasped. In front of her, in the hallway, was the most handsome man that she had ever seen. Her pulse quickened, and she stood there and just watched him. His golden flowing hair, the way he carried himself, she didn't know who he was, but she knew that she had to see more of him. Then she realized that she had been staring at him for the past minute or two, and that he noticed, and that the rest of the hallway noticed, and that they were all looking at her in her sleeping clothes. She let out a short, awkward, pained chuckle, ran into her room, and slammed the door behind her. She slid down the back of the door until she was sitting on the ground, but she could only smile. Medea was in love. It was an awkward breakfast. When King Aetes had gone to bed the night before, he did not know he would be entertaining 40-plus epic Greek warriors when he woke up. Few do. He sat down with a few of the more prominent ones, their captain Jason, some king named Theseus, Argus, Laertes, and others. He led with the very obvious, so what are you all doing in my house? They explained all about the evil Peleus, the trip here, and how they just needed the golden fleece and they would be on their way. Aetes looked at Jason. Yeah, I'm not buying it. Is it the fleece? Is, do you really value it that much? This is my father's life we're talking about, Jason said. Value it? Aetes said. I mean, I have a sleepless dragon guarding it at all times. So yeah, you could say I value it. But I don't think that's why you came. You gathered the best warriors of your land to come and ask me nicely? No, I think you want to steal my kingdom, my throne. Jason said, well, they obviously needed all these men for the dangers on the way here. I mean, there were two harpies. A bunch of feasts, too. So much eating. Amazonians, too. I mean, we didn't fight them. We just sort of sailed past them, but still, they're scary. Oh, and those birds we had to scare off. Come on, it was really dangerous. Aetes just looked at him. And then he began to spit curses at the Greeks, saying that if he hadn't given them food first and wasn't bound by the customs of hospitality, then they would go home without their heads. He continued, and Jason could see that his Argonauts were beginning to take the bait. If they attacked first, Aetes' warriors could flood the room with guards and cut them down, and the Argonauts would have offended the gods by attacking. Jason interrupted him. They didn't want his little kingdom, but they did want the fleece. It was obvious that Aetes would not be giving it to them. 
how about they worked for him? He had to have enemies, or neighbors that he wanted dead to expand his kingdom. The Argonauts were really good at killing people. Jason felt a bit more relief when he saw Aetes relax and pause for a moment. Then the king took a deep breath and spoke. No, there wasn't anyone he wanted dead, but there was some farming he needed done. He snapped his finger, and a servant brought him a weathered leather pouch. He had purchased these seeds at no small expense from a famed merchant who had traveled the world. They came from the homeland of the Greeks. It said that they were pilfered from the fortress of Cadmus, the king of Thebes. The day he supposedly turned into a dragon and disappeared. And they weren't seeds, not quite. They were teeth. They just needed to be planted. But it would not be easy. There were really only two bulls available at the moment to tilt the fields. And they both had sharp bronze hooves and breathed fire. They just kind of did whatever they wanted and weren't yoked or anything. So whoever undertook this task would first need to yoke them. Aetes said, This shouldn't be any problem for you all, though. You're the sons of gods, after all. If you can plant these seeds and reap the harvest, then you can have the fleece. There was silence in the room. I can imagine Jason turning to the heroes, looking around for volunteers, as they, like students who don't want to talk in class, refuse to make eye contact. Jason sighed. This was his quest. He was the leader. He told Aetes that he would do it. They heard a gasp and a sob from the hallway, and the sound of a young woman crying as she ran away. Medea's tears dropped on the scroll, making the ink run. She had to find it. She had to find something to protect him. She didn't know why she felt this way after seeing him only once in a hallway, but her hands shook. She was so anxious. She snorted and wiped away the snot and tears with one motion, and then her eyes found the solution. She rocked back in her chair and laughed. She found it. She spent hours making the potion. It was called Prometheon, and it was made from the flowers that sprung up whenever bits of Prometheus's blood hit the ground after the daily eagle attack. It could repel fire, strikes from bronze, and it would make a person who wore it braver and mightier for one day. Then, she sat and stared at it. For a long time, she considered pouring it into the dirt outside. She knew what it meant. If she used it, then her family would know. Since she was the only witch in the house, suspicion would fall on her. She was betraying everyone she had known and loved for this person that she didn't know at all. She would be driven to death, either by her father or by her own hand, and anyone who saw her, or even thought of her, would talk of her with pity and shame, that she had given her heart to a man she didn't know, and that she had destroyed herself in the process. She couldn't bring herself to throw out the vial, though. There had to be another way, she thought of it. She gripped the potion to her chest and rushed into the hall, and she ran headlong into her sister, Calciope, who had a request for her. As it turned out, Calciope was worried about her sons, who had come with the Argonauts. She learned that King Aetes, her Medea's father, blamed the young men for bringing the Argonauts to Colchis. She was right to be worried. The Argonauts were staying in their ship, and after Jason inevitably failed against the bulls the next day, King Aetes would burn their ships, preferably with them inside, and have Calciope's sons put to death for treason. Calciope begged her sister Medea to find a way to save this Jason person. Medea smiled. It was early when Medea rose the next morning. 
Cassiope had told her sons to tell Argus to tell Jason to meet her in the clearing by the Temple of Hecate. She rode with ten attendants, women she could trust completely, and when they got close, she told them to hang back by the road. She tightly gripped the vial as she rode into the clearing, seeing a hooded figure standing in the center. The first several minutes were awkward. Medea, so overwhelmed with feelings, could not find the words. Jason tried to make eye contact, but she would hardly look at him. Finally, he told her to please calm down. Medea's sister had said that she had some sort of potion for him or something. Jason said, don't worry. She has nothing to fear from him. And he could tell that she was kind-hearted by how beautiful she was. The mere thought that he could feel the same way about her helped Medea calm down a bit. And she got straight to business. She produced the vial and told him how to prepare for battle. The potion would protect him from all human weapons and fire and give him strength and valor for one day. At dawn, he needed to sacrifice a lamb to Hecate, wash, and then apply it all over his body and weapons. Jason was surprised. That was it? He thanked her and put the vial away. She told him to wait. There, there was more. The seeds that he had to plant weren't normal seeds. She told him all about the Spartoi and how they would be unstoppable, or would be, if Medea had not stayed up all night researching. She found a solution, a rock. If Jason threw a rock in the center of them, then they would fight each other to the death. Jason said, oh, okay, so like a magical rock that you've enchanted or something? Medea just said, nope, just a normal stone and they'll fight to the death. Mythology is weird. Medea just asked, as she rested her hand on Jason's, that he not forget her when he returned to his homeland. Something had changed in Jason while Medea told him about the battle. She was beautiful, confident, and completely alluring. She had a power and a way about her. He told her that she would never be forgotten in Greece, neither by him when he took the throne, or by the many men that she had saved from Aeti's wrath. She would be a hero, and if she ever chose to come to Greece, to leave her family, then Jason would give her every happiness possible in a marriage. Medea gasped, and Jason smiled and held her hands. Then he looked over her shoulder, and he saw the first lights in the morning, and her attendants coming into the clearing. He had to go. They looked at each other one last time, smiled, and parted. I can imagine Jason telling his friend Theseus all about the beautiful daughter of the king coming at the last minute to rescue him from a bull, and Jason talking about marrying her and taking her back to his kingdom, with Theseus saying, Oh, hey, that sounds familiar. Oh my gosh, I left Ariadne on an island. Oh, that is not good. Ooh, how long has it been? One, maybe two years? Oh, I totally forgot to go back to get her. She's, that's, she's probably okay, right? Right? King Aetes had learned over the years that when you put enemies into the pen with fire-breathing, bronze-hooved bulls, things kind of just sort themselves out. Not so with Jason. Aetes was angry when he saw Jason easily yoke the bulls and plow the field, but absolutely livid when he saw the man throw a rock into the center of the sparchoy that sprang up after he planted the dragon's teeth. Jason jumped into the fray, just swinging the sword around and pretending to fight the sparchoy while they killed each other all around him. Breathing heavily, Jason looked at the cheering crowd, and he found Medea, smiling and clapping. He looked at Aeti's chair, and saw that he had left in a rage.
Harrow was bored. Of course, everything was going according to her plan, but the Argonauts were still hundreds of miles away from Greece, and King Peleus getting what he deserved. Maybe she sensed that the plot was starting to drag a bit, so she decided to speed things along by filling Medea with crushing anxiety and paranoia. The girl was shoving clothing into a pack. She knew that her father knew what she had done. How could he not? Jason was bewitched and she was the only witch. She would be killed. She knew she had to leave. If her father's warriors weren't on their way to her now, they would be. She waited until the middle of the night, took one look back into her room and left. Medea had lived in the castle her whole life. She knew the secrets that it kept. The passageways known only to her and the rats. In minutes, she was outside the walls without a single guard seeing her. She traveled down the road to the river, staying in the shadows of the moonlight. Soon, she heard a ruckus and saw the magnificent Argo. The Argonauts were not filled with anxiety and paranoia at all. They were partying. It took some work to get their attention, but eventually someone standing watch saw Medea waving at the edge of the river. They sent a small boat for her, and Jason laughed and hugged her. They had done it. She broke down. She had betrayed her family, and now her father was coming for them. They had to leave now. Medea said that she had to come too, but she was worried about Jason just abandoning her once they got out to sea, like some Grecian princes, she said, looking at Theseus. Jason smiled. It could have been the wine talking or the recent victory, but he took her hand and he pledged never to abandon her. He'll take her to his palace and make her his wedded wife once they got to Greece. The anxiety in Medea's heart melted away. Everything was going to be all right. She told Jason that they just had to leave now. Aetes was going to burn their ship. Jason said, yeah, absolutely, they needed to leave. But he picked up his sword. He said they would leave just after he got back from the city. He had to go get the fleece and to kill the dragon that was guarding it. Next week, it's the dragon, the fleece, and the trip home. And you'll watch the newest Argonaut, the Princess Medea, constantly bail out this ship full of legendary heroes. I want to say thanks to Chelsea Rabbit, Katie Rose 77, K Caddy Pure, TKD Kim, D Sig, M Zillary, Lickaby, B underscore 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 123, Emac DD2, Sandman 0838, I Raise Chickens on a Modest Farm, all one word, Curtil, Akrova, Selman Q, Lil GT Doll, Kid Marie, and Arf Tufi 2 for the reviews on iTunes. Thank you all so much for the reviews and for the feedback. If you'd like to leave a review, iTunes or the iOS Podcasts app are the best places, and you can find the show there at itunes.mythpodcast.com. And, as always, there's a membership thing on the site. For less than half of the price of the cheapest tortoise I could find online, you can get a whole year of extra episodes, ad-free versions of the show, and source pack ebooks that won't con you out of everything you own. Check out support.mythpodcast.com for more info. The creature this week is the Roaring Bull of Bagbury, from Wales and Great Britain. There was once a very bad man, so bad that he was only credited with two good deeds in his entire life. He gave some cheese to a poor boy and a waistcoat to a poor man. Anyway, he was so bad that he was cursed by a witch. The curse was that when he died, he would take the shape of a large, rampaging bull. If this seems like a horrible way to curse someone you hate, well, I feel the same way. And 
because he's not immortal, he died, and the next day a horrible spectral bull was roaring and rampaging around the countryside. Excellent curse. I don't think he actually hurt anyone though. He was just really loud and would get into people's houses and make a lot of noise. Anyway, he was eventually lured to the church in Hissington in Wales. He was surrounded by parsons who trapped him when they prayed, and he shrunk to be small enough to fit in a snuff box. As one moved closer to scoop up the still roaring, though significantly less intimidating bull, the evil man had one final request. He asked that they bury the snuff box underneath Bagbury Bridge. That way, any pregnant mare that travels over it will lose her foal, and any pregnant woman who traveled over the bridge would lose her baby. I can imagine the Parsons looking at him and saying, are you serious? No, no, absolutely not. Why would we do that? That makes absolutely no sense. The tiny bull's roars and protests were quieted when they closed the box. People heard the story though, and for years they were apparently afraid to go for Bagbury Bridge. The Parsons went to great extent to make sure that this cursed bull was gone forever. They did not mess around, and they traveled thousands of miles to throw the snuff box in the Red Sea. That's it for this time. The theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. Other music is by Poddington Bear and Blue Dot Sessions. Still more music is linked in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.